Welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the IFS, and today we're going to focus on the likely impact of school closures on educational inequality and also on the effects they're having on parents. To do that, I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Alison Andrew and Christine Farquharson, who have recently carried out an online survey funded by the Nuffield Foundation of several thousand families to discover just how parents and children have been spending their time during lockdown. The results, I'm afraid, are, if not surprising, certainly worrying. Children from less well-off backgrounds have been spending a lot less time on learning, and especially on active and supported learning since lockdown began. Meanwhile, it's mothers who have felt the brunt of the additional caring responsibilities. So that's the background to what we're going to talk about. But before we go into the uh, results of the work that Christine and Alison have been carrying out, perhaps, Christine, you could just tell us a little bit uh, about the survey that you carried out and what it tells us. Absolutely. We surveyed about 5,000 parents in England uh, in the first two weeks of May, and we asked them how they and their children were spending their time during lockdown. So for every hour of the day, we asked them to fill out whether they were doing educational activities or childcare or housework. And we also asked more specific questions about what kinds of education children were doing at home. The survey respondents were diverse uh, and captured people from all sorts of regions, social backgrounds, educational backgrounds, and that meant that we were able to reweight it and make it really very representative of the population of England as a whole. So this is some of the first information that we're getting on how people are actually spending their lives in lockdown when, you know, in some ways we can't really see what's happening beyond their front door. So you've got a nice uh, representative um, sample across the uh, population. So can you just give us uh, an overview of uh, how children are spending their time, uh, and in particular, how much time they've been spending on educational activities? So we find on average, children are spending around five hours a day on educational activities. And if you're looking for a piece of good news from this whole crisis, this is one of the relatively brighter spots in our report. Five hours a day compares you know, reasonably favorably to the six hours, including lunchtime and breaks, that kids would be spending in school in a normal world. Uh, so overall, um, might be surprising to learn, actually, that there seems to be almost as much educational activity going on as the time uh, children were spending at school. But how does that differ between different groups? And in particular, how does that differ between the less well-off and the better-off? Yeah, well, when I said that the total amount of time was one of the bright spots, this is where we start to get into the darker territory. I think one of the biggest lessons from our study is that children in richer families are spending much more time on educational activities. We estimate an average of 75 minutes a day more time on education is being spent by children in the richest fifth of households compared to the peers in the poorest fifth of households. Those are big differences. That means that By the time some children start to go back to school on the 1st of June, richer children will have spent seven days more time on home learning than their poor classmates. And probably double that if they're not back until September. Absolutely. So what we're looking at here is a real gulf in the amount of learning time that children from different backgrounds are getting. And actually that's compounded by the fact that they're spending the time they do have on quite different activities. So, Alison, let's move on to um, the differences between what it seems that different schools are providing in terms of things like online teaching and discussions with teachers rather than simply um, setting work. Um, So one thing I think you looked at was the difference between uh, the state and private sectors. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Um, we find that parents of kids who are in private school are far more likely to report that their child is being offered um, online interactive resources such as online classes or video conferencing. And these are really important because there are lots of reasons to think that these type of resources are going to be particularly useful in promoting children's learning as lockdown progresses. Um, these are resources that are going to allow pupils to preserve their relationships with their own teachers, something that we know is going to be really important. They're also going to let children keep working on their own curriculum and to be able to engage with their teachers for help, which means that they're going to be less reliant on their parents. And so if we take online classes, for example, nearly 80% of kids in private secondary schools are being offered these compared to only about half of kids in state secondary schools. Um, and so although fewer pupils at the primary school level are being offered online classes, the difference between private and state schools remains really large. And that confirms work that the Sutton Trust has uh, carried out uh, as well, a really big differences between state and private sector in the amount of active engagement schools are continuing with uh, their pupils. But I think you found differences within the state sector as well. Yeah, I think this is this is a really interesting finding. So we actually find very substantial differences um, between the schools that richer and poorer uh, pupils go to within the state sector. So if we go back to our online class example, 58% of the richest pupils who go to state schools report being offered online classes, compared to only 41% of the poorest pupils. Um, and so one consideration that we've heard a lot from teachers is that schools are trying to choose their mix of resources in a way that limits inequalities within the school. So, for example, if a school knows that 50% of its pupils don't have access to the kind of technology that they're going to need to access online classes, that school might deliberately choose not to provide online classes at all. But what our findings suggest is that um, this type of consideration is at risk of opening up substantial inequalities between schools, given that we know that schools in this country are pretty segregated by households and financial resources. So that's, uh, I mean, that, that's really worrying in terms of what schools are providing, to some extent constrained by what their pupils may have access to, though it seems also constrained by their own decisions. But there's another set of constraints on children, isn't there, that uh, many of those from the poorer backgrounds may simply not have the private study areas and the support from their parents that uh, that, that, that other children might have. Uh, completely. So we find both of those things, that um, study space is a particularly important constraint. And this is particularly hard because it's difficult to see how in the short term the government's going to be able to do much about that. Um, they're also more less likely to have um, the technology that they're going to need to access online classes. We know that the government's thinking about how to loosen those constraints. And that's, as you say, something very difficult to change. I mean, one, one thing that people listening may be wondering is how much does this really matter? I mean, it looks like this will be going on for uh, you know, maybe a term. Uh, as a term out of many years of um, schooling that, that young people have. Christine, if, how much should we worry about this? Is this are we, are we making a mountain out of a rather small molehill here in that it is just a short period of time in people's educational careers? I'm afraid we're really not. Um, the, the differences that we document between poorer and richer students are really enormous. I mean, you're thinking about the equivalent of three weeks of full-time school 
that richer children will have done extra if they're going back at the start of September. And as Allison said, it's not just how much time they're spending, they're also getting more support from their schools, they're also getting more support from their parents, they have more resources at home. Um, even if you look at something like private tutoring, some rich children, about 12% of the richest students, are spending an hour a day or more with a paid private tutor. That's enormous. And if you set that in the context of previous research, which shows that just an hour a week of extra teaching time can have really very substantial, long-lasting benefits for kids' education, we actually do need to be quite concerned that the inequalities in home learning that we're seeing are going to really widen the inequalities and attainment that were already in place, uh, but that are going to look much bigger when we do get back to the classroom. And, and when when we do eventually get children back, are there things that schools could do, particularly if they had more resource? I mean, should we, for example, be thinking of funding poorer schools more or encouraging them to do more small group teaching with some of their more disadvantaged pupils? In a lot of ways, this looks like a challenge that's a different scale to what we've seen before, but a similar shape to what we've seen before. We know that for a long time, there have been gaps between poorer and richer students in how well they do at school. And there's been a lot of effort put in from the research community, from teachers, from policymakers, into thinking about what we can do to try and help those particularly disadvantaged students. So applying those lessons that we've built up over many, many years to something that is very different, is a, is a much bigger challenge to what we're used to, um, but has many of the similar features to where thinking has, has happened in the past. And whether that does mean, you know, smaller, more intensive tutoring for poorer students, whether that means looking at school funding, whether that means thinking about how you're going to manage the process of schools reopening. The important thing, though, is that we start thinking about those kinds of questions now. That's really uh, that's really uh, important in terms of when we do uh, get children back. But obviously, we've seen a lot of debate in the last um, few weeks and indeed the last few days about when schools should reopen. And the Prime Minister has confirmed that some schools will reopen to some children actually as soon as next week. What, what, did you, what do your findings have to say about that debate? So I think this is actually one of the most interesting things that we found we asked parents if they were given the choice uh, in the first two weeks of May when we surveyed them, if they were given the choice, would they send their kid back to school? And we found that fewer than half of parents, substantially fewer than half of parents, would be happy for their child to go back to school. But even more than that, there's a really big difference by income. So in the richest fifth of families, around half of parents would be happy for their kid to go back to school. In the poorest fifth of families, it's only 30%. And that means that we're risking a world where it's the children who are the least able to cope with home learning, who are staying at home, even as their better off classmates go back to school. And that means that it's not just about, you know, do we care about education? Do we care about health and safety? This sort of binary debate. It really is the case that you need to get the health and safety sorted out. You need to make sure that pupils and teachers and parents all feel happy about going back to school in order for anything that the government says about when that should happen to mean anything at all on the ground. Because if you open up schools and you've only got 20, 30, 40% of pupils in the classroom, it's going to be quite, quite a tough act for schools to pull off to maintain the distance learning activities that they are doing while they're also trying to educate a bunch of children in the flesh. 
Wow, that's really quite worrying. There's a lot of reassurance and communication the government's going to need to do, and indeed schools are going to need to do, to make a return to the classroom effective. Um, So we've been talking so far about the effects of um, lockdown on the children themselves, but your survey also looked at how parents are spending their time and at the effects on mothers and fathers. Um, No parent listening will be surprised to find this has been a pretty um, challenging period. But I think, Alison, your findings suggested that mothers are bearing the brunt of the um, extra responsibilities. Can can you give us a a sense of to what extent that's happening? Yeah, so... I mean, the first thing to say is, as you said, um, we're finding that both mothers and fathers are putting in a huge increase in the amount of childcare compared to before the crisis. So we also went back and we looked at a big, tiny survey that was done in the UK in 2014 and 2015 and tried to find comparable um, analysis on that survey to compare to what we're finding today. We find that both mothers and fathers are putting a huge increase in the amount of childcare time. Um, And in fact, most parents are doing childcare in one way or another now for the vast majority of hours of the day. However, we do find that mothers are putting in substantially more time. And so the average mother is spending around 10 and a half hours on childcare a day compared to eight hours for the average father. And so within this, we tried to make a bit of an effort to distinguish between childcare that involves parents actively doing um, activities or caring for a child and childcare that's more passive and therefore more amenable to also doing it at the same time as work or housework or other types of activities. And so around 60% of the childcare hours that we find are this more passive type of care that you can do whilst also doing other things. And what we find is that mothers are particularly um, doing passive childcare whilst also trying to get on with the rest of their days. So they're simultaneously trying to balance paid work and childcare. And this seems to be a major um, kind of constraint for the time of mothers. Um, But mothers are also, even if they were working beforehand, they're significantly more likely than fathers to have stopped work since the lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. So... um, That's exactly what we find. So mothers are more likely to have stopped their job um, in a more permanent basis, either due to having quit or been laid off. They're also more likely to have been furloughed. What we don't know at this point is the extent to which some of these decisions are driven by childcare needs, whether this is mothers taking a step back from the labour market in order to meet additional childcare needs of their household, or whether this is to do with the... um, industries and the occupations that mothers on average work in compared to fathers is probably a bit of both. So we find, yes, mothers more likely to have stopped working for pay. On top of that, the mothers who are continuing to work for pay have reduced their hours by more than fathers who are continuing to work for pay. Likewise, if we look at quality of work time, so we look at the extent to which work time is being interrupted by other activities, the vast majority of which is childcare, Mothers are spending um, about half of their work hours are being interrupted by childcare. This compares to about um, 30% for fathers. And so taking all of this together, what it means is that mothers during lockdown are only doing around a third of the uninterrupted paid work hours that fathers are. Compared to the before the lockdown, this was 60%. So this is really a massive widening 
of the kind of quality work time that mothers are doing in comparison with fathers. That really is a big uh, that really is a big change and a big relative change. Uh, and one of the things I suspect people aren't so aware of is this is particularly different to previous recessions. Actually, the last recession and indeed ones before that have tended to hit male employment much more than female employment. Absolutely, and um, as I said, there's these two things that could be going on here. So, first of all, we know that the sectors that were locked down disproportionately employed women. So. This is going to move in that direction. So hospitality, disproportionately employed women. Um, On the other hand, this recession is unique in that it's come hand in hand with a big increase in the demands of parents, in particular within the home. Um, And so there's every likelihood that a lot of parents have needed to reduce their work hours or even to stop paid work altogether in order to meet those demands. Um, And so together with the fact that uh, mothers have traditionally um, often taken the lead in these activities, they are perhaps more likely to be the ones who've volunteered to be furloughed or to stop work altogether um, in order to um, deal with this increased demand. But again, perhaps we shouldn't be so worried about this if this is uh, something that's going to happen for a month or two and then everything gets back. To normal, but have you got any concerns about there being longer-term consequences for women's wages and employment? I think this is where there's a couple of really big unknowns. So the first thing, I guess, is that we really don't know how temporary these arrangements are. So we know that a lot of children are going to be at home until September. We know that home working might be advised for even longer. And then also, we've heard a lot about um, people talking that this crisis might really shake up work arrangements more generally, and we might see home working becoming more of a norm. And so what our initial findings would suggest is that mothers are more likely than fathers to bear the brunt in terms of their focused work time when they're trying to simultaneously juggle paid work and childcare. In other words, this sort of... um, diminishing or this lessening of the distinction between paid work and home is likely to hit the uh, progression of mothers more than it is of fathers. And so if this um, type of new work arrangements are going to continue, I think we've got reason to worry. The other thing, of course, is that really tough labour market conditions are likely to persist for quite a long time. So this means that mothers who've had to take Um, a step back from paid work to meet their childcare needs are going to find it pretty hard to find work again or to increase the hours of work again after we come out the other side. So that's uh, another way in which this uh, hopefully relatively short-term crisis could have really big negative um, effects over the longer run. But Christine, I think there is at least some light here in the sense that um, whilst mothers might have been bearing the brunt, a lot of fathers have been doing a lot more childcare than in the past. That's right. And as Alison said, you have to think about this in the context that everyone is doing an awful lot more than they had to do before. So mothers are now doing childcare in around 50% more hours of the day than they were back in 2014. But fathers have nearly doubled the amount of time that they're spending on childcare. Uh, they're still doing less than mothers. It's it's still the case that mums are really taking taking hold of the the brunt of this new work, but fathers are now doing childcare during about eight hours of every day, every weekday, 
That's quite a lot. And when we're talking about whether these short-run changes are likely to have long-run implications, this is one place where it could as well, because there's quite a lot of research that says when you introduce policies like paternity leave, for example, and you get dads more involved in what's happening at home, that does have that does help to shift attitudes and shift behavior and just make fathers a little bit more aware of what needs to be done, how much of it there is and and how they can do that. And that's something where we could see that those new attitudes and new behaviors might persist even after, as Alison says, even after we get to the other side of this. Well, people have been saying that this crisis may change everything. It may change the way we work. It may change society. And from what Alison and Christine have been saying, some of those changes may actually be back to the future, as it were, in the sense of uh, returning to the bigger gaps between the better off and the less well off, returning to bigger gaps between men and women and how they spend their time uh, in the labour market and out of it. Although there may be some other uh, impacts, particularly on gender inequality, that move in the other direction. Certainly, the work on uh, schooling suggests that getting children back to school as soon as possible, given safety constraints, is going to be vital if we're not to lose years' worth of progress on educational equity and perhaps on gender equity too. Alison, Christine and the team will be following up with more surveys of the same group of people, doing more analysis of this data and hopefully following up to see how the children do in exams over the next few years. So do look out for the results of that work. But before then, do tune in to the next edition of the IFS Zooms In. And if you enjoyed this episode, please hit subscribe and rate us. And you can always stay on top of our latest work by visiting www.ifs.org.uk. Stay well, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon.